Welcome to the broadcast of Riverside Church in Princeton, North Carolina. Riverside Church preaching Christ and Him crucified. For more information, check out our website at www.riversidefwb.com. Good evening. Welcome to Riverside. If you would, grab your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter number 4. Tonight, we're looking at Revelation chapter number 4. Revelation chapter number 4. Remember, there's no revelations. There's one revelation. That's the revelation where Christ is pulled back. And it actually shows and reveals the information about Jesus. There is general revelation where you go outside and know there is a God. Because whenever we see, there's a, we see the creation, we know there's a creator. So... Well, the book of Revelation is actually a, 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 an effectual revelation. It tells us how to be saved. When we look at a sunset, we really don't know how to be saved. We know there's a God, but we don't know how to communicate with Him. That's why the, the, we see in um, history the, the great um, Native Americans, they say there's a grand spirit. There's a greater and higher power. But we know through the book of Revelation who the higher power is and how we can be uh, reconciled to the work of Jesus Christ. So if you would, grab your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter Revelation chapter 4 verse number 1 we begin in verse number 1 if you remember for the last couple of weeks we've gone verse by verse chapter by chapter and we've looked at Jesus speaking to the churches in the area now there were seven churches there were more churches than just those seven but they were symbolically used the number seven to let us know that the church is perfect God perfectly saves his people absolutely perfectly that lets us know that we don't contribute nothing to our salvation. That we're saved absolutely. We don't have to tithe. We don't have to go to church. We don't have to read our Bibles to secure our salvation. When Jesus died in our stead and in our place, that was all that was needed to be done. When Jesus bowed his head at the cross, he says, it is finished. There's nothing left to do. So why do we go to church? Why do we tithe? Why do we read our Bibles? Because we get to. Amen, somebody. But we see the view changing in chapter number 4. Before it was just a letter of the one who says he's the ancient of days. Now we actually see the scene change where John, the revelator, is going to be transported up to heaven. Now we have spoke about how revelation is not about the mark of the beast. It's not about guillotines. It's not about FEMA camps. It's not about RF chips in your hands to scan to buy groceries. We are not told anywhere in the Bible to prepare for the Antichrist. We're prepared to see Jesus return. Amen. But we get get to see in chapter number 4 verse number 1 after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven now many theologians and many preachers will actually say here in chapter number 4 verse 1 this is where the rapture takes place however I'm going to debunk that tonight because you'll see something here whenever he's writing he says that he is in the spirit that means if there is a rapture here at this point that we go in the spirit and our body stays here then that means there were a bunch of corpses laying in the, on the ground here at the church or, in, or wherever we are on the job if we got raptured and our spirits were yanked from our bodies then the our bodies are still here and here John is saying I was in the spirit on the Lord's day beginning in chapter number one but we after this I look and behold a door was standing open in heaven what I want you to focus in chapter number four verse number one is the door that's open in heaven we have mentioned this door before the church in Philadelphia back in Revelation chapter three verse eight Jesus is speaking to the church in Philadelphia he says I know your works behold I have set before you an open door which no one is about to shut I know 
know that you have but little power, and you, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. We see that door there. We also see the door once again mentioned in Revelation chapter 3 again in verse 20. To the church of Laodicea, which we spoke about last week. The lukewarm church. The ones who were not moved by Christ. They're neutral about Jesus. They're not on fire for Jesus. And they're not cold towards Jesus. They kind of got a meh kind of attitude towards Christ. They can take Him or leave Him. But in Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and him with me. We see where Jesus was trying to find interest into his own church. The people who were supposed to worship him, he's going to knock on the door. And the letter that was sent to that church in Revelation chapter 3 is the knocking on the door. And we expose that and unpack that in chapter number 3 where Jesus is speaking to individuals that he knocks on the door of your heart. Now we see that Jesus tells us in John chapter 14 verse 6 for those who are taking notes that Jesus calls himself the door. In chapter number 4, John sees a door in heaven. And it's fitting that Jesus says in 14.6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying there in chapter number 14, He is the door. So what John sees in chapter number 4 of Revelation is Jesus, the open door. He is the only reason that we're able to go to heaven. He has an epiphany. He has a, a revelation, as you will, that there's an open door to heaven. I, I don't know about you, but that's a little exciting to know that there's an open door for me. That I'm allowed to go in heaven. Tonight as I pulled up at church, I was wondering how my family got into the church because I had the keys to the church. I don't know, my wife's a little sneaky and shady. Somehow my kids and my wife got in here and the lights were on. They told me they came in through the back. The door was unlocked. The door was open and they were able to come in. Jesus is the door. We don't have to sneak around the back like my kids and my wife did tonight. We can come in through the front. The door is open. We see in John chapter 10, verse 7 through 12. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door, the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that you may have life and have them more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We see how Jesus tells us that the shepherd dies for the sheep. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that the sheep were slaughtered. They were sacrificed for the shepherds. But in the New Testament, the shepherd dies for the sheep. And now we see up the story again of the door found in Revelation chapter 19. We haven't got there yet. Verse 11 through 12. And then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And righteousness he judges and makes war. Speaking of Jesus. So we see here in chapter number 4 the door is open. We see Jesus. And only because of Jesus can we see and peer into heaven. Amen. Somebody. Somebody. 
For if Jesus were to stay in heaven, never was incarnate, never to be the man who was the God-man who came to earth, heaven would be closed to us. The door would not be open. We will be on the outskirts of darkness. We'll be orphans of sin. We'll be dead in our trespasses. But if it were not for Jesus opening the door tonight, saying, come on in the house. The table's set. Come in. Kick your feet up. There's no more worries. No more tears here. There's no more tombstones. No more crying. No more goodbye. The door is open because of Jesus. Amen. That's just verse 1. How about we unpack some more? And the first voice he heard, and I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. The same voice that told him to write the letter is now speaking to him again. And this voice is like a trumpet. That means it boomed. It was loud. Many people want God to speak to them. Truly, if God spoke to you, you would fall dead right where you stand. It's good that God speaks in whispers. He speaks in booms and thunders. Whatever gets your attention. But here, John says, he heard like a trumpet. Come up here and I'll show you what must must take place. And at once, I was in the Spirit. So we see in verse number 2 that John was in the Spirit. If this is a representation of the rapture, then we would just be there in spirit. So I will debunk that. I want to remind you that when we read the book of Revelation, it's the same story over and over, overlapping again. We saw the first first seven churches mentioned in Revelation. They are not dispositions of the years of the churches from the point of uh, when Christ ascended into heaven until now. They were churches that were meant for them to be corrected by Christ. That every church in every age can read and say, I better start doing that because that applies to me. Otherwise, it only applied to the children to the Christians at the end of time to read their Bible and say, well, this hasn't happened yet, this hasn't happened yet. This is a a, a picture book of the grand story of redemption. We see here that John now is in the Spirit in heaven and he gets to show us the greatest movie, uh, the epic adventure that's ever been shown. He tells us a vision like television. He tells us what he sees as he sees in verse number 2, and I stood in the Spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven. That should encourage you. In a time where there's civil unrest. A year ago, January the 6th, there was civil unrest in our capital because people thought ballots were uh, shady and there was an election that was hijacked. Wherever you stand on that, it don't really matter because that's not the point. Governments rise and fall. America's only about 400 years old and we walk around like a cucky teenager trying to tell everybody how to act. But there's old generations, there's old nations that have been around a long time and there's generations and nations that have fallen and God's throne is still in heaven, still standing in heaven. God still reigns over everything is what John says here. He says, and I saw and behold a throne in heaven. That's who you serve. I know we stand and say, I pledge allegiance to the flag. That's grand. But you are a citizen to God in the kingdom of God. You pledge allegiance to the Lamb and His Word and stand on His principles regardless of who's in the White House. We trust Him and serve Him first. Render into Caesar what Caesar's, but you belong to God. We see, he says, I behold a throne that stood in heaven. This should encourage you. It should also let you know that you're not on the throne. That you don't run things. You might be big and bad. And you might make things big, big popping and little things dropping. But here we see there's a throne in heaven. He reigns and you do not. 
You are his loyal servant. You serve him and live for his pleasure. Live to his glory. We already start to see. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to fail miserably tonight as I try to explain from this text the glimpse of glory and God in all his power and might. I will fail miserably. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, I hope you see the picture. I hope your ear is dipped in blood tonight. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord is trying to reveal to you tonight. That there is a throne in heaven. Not that it's being established. Not that they're just putting it up. It has been there. And it will be there for an eternity. A throne stood in heaven. Oh, that's so good to me. Civil unrest. Society. The economy. Jobs, friends, family, all that comes and goes. Seasons change, people change, situations change, I change. But He does not. There is a throne in heaven. Who's on the throne? Is it Buddha? Muhammad? Krishna? One of the 550 million Hindu gods? Is it one of them? Let's go together and see. At once I was in the Spirit... He had to be in the Spirit because the Scripture tells us that no man can live and see God. So he had to be in the Spirit. Because if he were to cast his physical carnal eyes on the God of all glory, he would fall dead. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. There is one seated on the throne. Wait a minute, what do you mean there's one seated? Isn't he a triune God? As we look at the text, you'll see the triune God. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You'll see it. We don't serve three gods. We serve one God. God in three persons. How does that make sense? Don't ask me. This is what it says. I'm just the messenger boy. I don't edit it. I'm not the editor. He said it. And if you don't understand it, welcome to the family. That's far beyond me. Above my pay grade. Well, I'll probably be in eternity still trying to figure it out. A million, million years, I'll still be going, I don't get it, but I'm glad I'm here. It's only by grace. In verse number 3, And he who sat there had an appearance of jasper and carline, and around the throne was a rainbow and had the appearance of emerald. This same throne was mentioned earlier in your Bible. If you don't know where to find it, you'll find it in Ezekiel chapter 10. You'll see in Ezekiel chapter 10 verse number 1, Ezekiel writes, The glory of the Lord leaves the temple. Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that over the heads of the cherubim there appear above them something like a sapphire, an appearance like a throne. Ezekiel sees the same thing that John does. But then again, so does Isaiah. Isaiah chapter number 6. Isaiah was at a funeral. The king had died. All of the nation was in turmoil. Everyone was weeping. But Isaiah has a revelation. God pulls back the curtain behind reality and shows the spiritual. That even this dignitary, this king, this royal priest, this king, this person who was very important and all the hopes of Israel placed on this man who is now dead, he pulls back the curtain and Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and his robe fills the temple. He sees that there is a God who's in heaven who's seated on the throne and everything's going to be alright. So Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter number 6 when you get time, be sure to read it. He speaks of the seraphim who cry unto one another across from each other in the throne room. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. 
And to the Hebrew, it's kadash, kadash, kadash. That means holy. There's no one else like Him. All day, every day, all the time, these uh, seraphim or mighty angels speak back and forth to each other. They say, He's holy. He's holy. He's holy. He's holy. They say it three times for the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Talking about the holiness of God. It's the only attribute of God that's mentioned three times. Yes, God is love. God is kind. He's faithful. He's a promise keeper. But He's holy, holy, holy. So all those other attributes hinge on His holiness. He's a God of love, but it's a holy love. He's a God of grace, but it's a holy grace. He's a God of forgiveness, but it's a holy forgiveness. In our time when we take a word and we twist it to mean something totally different or even put our own swing on it, even in the Flintstones. I remember growing up and whenever they say, we'll have a gray old time. And, and, and she's, he's screaming, Wilma, at the end. And I used to thought, well, gay means they're homosexual because that's what it meant. No, back in those times it meant a happy time. See how words change? But if God is holy, then His love is holy. He'll love you with a perfect holy love. That means He's not going to put up with your alternative lifestyles. He's not going to put up with your gossip. He's not going to put up with your unforgiveness for He is holy. He's forgiving, but it's a holy forgiveness. And He will not compromise His holiness to make our culture relaxed, to make our culture stomach Him. He will not change. We must. And the only way we'll change is if He speaks to us and causes us to change. That's the only way. We must be born again. Do you see the dilemma here? This holy throne where God is. But you must see there, He has the appearance of Jasper and Carleen. And around the throne was a rainbow. It had the appearance of an emerald. You see there's three different colors. For some strange reason, John does not write the appearance of the person sitting on the throne. He could only describe colors. These colors that he sees, the first being Jasper, is like a diamond or pure image. The other one was a Carlean, which is also sapphire if you're looking in the King James Version. It says it's a deep purple or a red. He describes that color. And then he describes a rainbow, an emerald green rainbow or a halo around everything. He can't describe the person on the throne. Do you know why he can't? Because God is not like anything else. He's otherworldly. He's out beyond. He's not like us in any way. We are made in His image. Don't get me wrong. That makes sense. Don't you understand? That we have a spirit. We have a soul and a body. We're a triune ourselves. So we can relate to God in His image. We have an understanding. We have knowledge. But there's nothing else like Him. So John could not compare Him to anything. The best He could do was colors. And the glory that was there. We, we can also read that the jasper was the last and the sardis or the carlean is the first stone in the high priest's breastplate. We can read in the book of Exodus that the high priest had to wear these breastplates that covered their chest and behind it was the ephod. When we studied the ephod, that was the, the black and the white stones that they would use when they inquired of the Lord a question. But they wore these stones on their chest and each stone was the color of the tribes of Israel. However, the jasper was the last one. It's on the end, the dark purple one. And the sardis, which is also the carlean, is the diamond 
common. And there, as, that's the first. It's just fitting that the high priest would look like he's related to God because family features run in families. There's noses that run in families. Ears, there's anger, there's hang-ups and habits, there's issues that run in families that look like you're related to someone and it just so happens in the family of God that we look like our Father. But you'll notice there's three. I don't know which one's what. I know there's a triune God and there's three colors here, so don't ask me to break it down any further than that. I can tell you in Exodus chapter 28, verse 17 through 18, you shall set in full rows of stones a row of sardis, topaz, and kermical, and shall be the first row. The second row shall be emerald, sapphire, and a diamond. So we see the same colors showing up again and again. Jasper being diamond. Carlene being deep red purple. We also see the rainbow. It is a fitting that, that God is sitting among His promise. Back in Genesis chapter 9 verse 12, He said, This is the sign of the covenant that I'll have between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign to the covenant between me and the earth. There's a halo around God. So when God looks out, He sees His promises. Whew. Okay, some of y'all ain't getting it, but I am. That's good to me. But He don't see my faults. Oh yeah, He, he sees them. But He hides them with His covenant and His promise. The emerald being the earth, probably. He made a promise towards the earth that He won't destroy us with water. The green halo, the three colors we see there. Now we go on to verse number 4. I know I'm probably stretching a little bit. I don't know. I don't read that there. Read your text. Go back and look in the Old Testament. Pull from there. If I go, let's look at Isaiah chapter number six together. If you got your Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter six. We'll compare the two where John the Revelator is basically copying off the pages of Isaiah, but they both had visions in Isaiah chapter six, verse one. Isaiah's vision of the Lord. And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. And two He covered His face. And with two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. This is the vision that Isaiah saw. It's the same thing that John sees. He actually sees the seraphim or the cherubim. He actually sees them with their wings. They mentioned the six wings. And we'll break those down as we get to them. But before we get there, I want you to see verse 4. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Praise the Lord. Look who won't he do it. Hey brother, come on in the house. Hey brother, come on in. I'm glad you're feeling good. I'm glad you're here tonight. Go, grab your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter number 4. Let's get after it, okay? Ask your neighbor if you need to get caught up. Uh, we're looking at verse number 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. There are 24 thrones, but they're around the throne. They're lower thrones. And on the seated on these thrones were 24 elders clothed with white garments which with golden crowns on their head. Now who are these who are clothed in white and who are holding crowns on their head. Luke chapter 22 verse 30, Jesus is telling His disciples that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So we see there's twelve tribes 
who are representatives of the children of Israel. The Old Testament is where we find half of these people. But in the New Testament, we find the 12, tri- the 12 disciples who are now representatives of the New Testament. So when God is seated on the throne, around Him He sees His promises and He sees at His feet His people. He sees the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's not one way for the Jewish people to come to God and another way for the Christian. We're all a part of the same covenant. And they're sitting there in white garments. White robes. Why white robes? Remember, I told you that God is holy, holy, holy. So only holy, holy, holy can be around God. The problem is is we ain't holy, y'all. Like a dry leaf. To a a match, one will consume the other. God in His holiness will consume us because we're sinful by nature, naughty by nature. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Uh, I'm throwing it back if you know what I'm talking about. We must understand that God is holy in all His ways and we are not. There's no way we can reconcile to Him. He must be the covenant maker and keeper. So He gives those white robes. Now you might say, how do they get those white robes? Of course, Jesus is the one who washes away our sins. Isaiah tells us, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will wash you and make you clean as snow. No matter how stained you are in your garments of your life or your soul, how dirty you are, Clorox and bleach will not wash it away. Time will not cause your sins to fade before God. It might fade before your memory and other people's memory, but God does not forget He will avenge. He is holy. And you are a rebel. And the only way you can be reconciled to Him if He extends the olive branch through Jesus Christ, the open door, and allows you and calls you through the door and dresses you in white robes. Robes of righteousness. Remember. Remember, old church, when Jesus used the parable and He said that there was a marriage supper where He invited everyone to come in and people came in and the, the bridegroom was rocking around and someone was not dressed for the occasion. He said, how did you even get in here? And He cast him out. That lets us know that the one who throws the party supplies all the clothes we need. You may come in with shame and dirt all over you. Wrecked. Don't worry. He supplies all the robes of righteousness you'll need. Woo! That's good to me. That's good. To, I, I don't have to get myself right. And I don't have to keep myself right. His blood washes away my sins from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. No matter how guilty I am, how, how, how wicked I am, my Jesus saves sinners because that's all there is. Amen. So we see here, that these elders are clothed in white garments. But that's not all. They have crowns. What they do to get crowns? They didn't do anything. It's God who enables them and gives them strength to live out their days. It's God who gives the patience, the joy, the peace. It's Him. That's the crowns. He gives them. And I know a little bit later on, if you've read ahead, you see where they fall on their face and they throw their crowns at the feet of God. Ain't it like God to bless you, give you a crown, and crown you with gifts just so you can throw it back at His feet so you don't get any credit? Amen, somebody. That's good to me. Whew, I like that. 
We see the same thing take place in Revelation chapter 15 verse 2. I told you it's the same story over and over. It's a picture book. It's the same story. It's laid out like this, but they fit on top of each other like a beautiful story repeated over and over. In Revelation chapter 15 verse 2, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who had conquered the beast and the image and the number of its name standing before the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. These same elders, the people of God who were there and they're beside a sea of glass. We'll get to that. Oh, that's going to blow your mind. But they're there and they're worshiping. All we're doing is walking through the door into a worship service where they're worshiping the one on the throne. If church bores you, heaven ain't for you. Amen. If church puts you to sleep, oh, you would sleep for an eternity in heaven because that's all it is. We're preparing now for eternity where we lift our hands and our hands don't get tired. We lift our voices and our voices don't cry because we have new bodies. We dance in His presence and we sing and glorify Him because He's worthy. Amen. So some of us, He ain't worthy. He ain't worth it. He ain't worth it to grow, crawl out of our lazy boys and come on a rainy night. He ain't worth it. He ain't worth us putting down the remote and opening our Bible. He ain't worth it. He ain't worth it for us to take our troubles to Him. He just ain't worth it. We always evaluate if something's worth it. Whether it's a job, a relationship, and whether it's a journey, whatever it is, we see if it's worth its time or value. But this worship service, every one of them fall on their face and say, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is God. We'll get there. We hadn't got there. I would explain the crowns. In James chapter 1 verse 12, if you're taking notes, write that down. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Which God has promised to those who love him. If you're going through a test, don't think it's strange. Don't think it's weird. Don't think I'm afflicted. My body is weary. I'm tired. Don't think it's something that don't make sense. Yes, probably there's a pulpit somewhere where someone's preaching that every day's a Friday. Every day's a burrito and a unicorn day and rainbows and skittles. They preach lies. You will do trials. You will go through trials and tribulations and sufferings. But Jesus tells us, don't worry, I've overcome them all. And when you get to the end, there's a crown for you. A victor's crown. Not that you've overcome, but your faith proved itself that God has truly saved you and holds on to you and claims you for Himself because trials and tribulations have came your way. Those who say, if you ever get sick, your faith must be weak. Those who say, you, if you ever have broke days where you have no money, then your anointing is very weak and you have no faith in an Almighty God. Whenever they read the book of Job, it spits in their face. Whenever they read the, the first and second epistles of uh, Peter, where Peter's talking about trials and tribulations, whenever they read anything about Paul, who was locked up for preaching the gospel, who was naked, who was beaten and stoned, stripped of all his dignity, left to die, and eventually martyred for preaching the gospel, they can't explain that. Even when Paul said, Lord, take this thorn away in my flesh. And God speaks to him and says, My grace is sufficient for you. Sometimes God will put more on you than you can handle. And that's the reason we hit our knees in prayer and cry out to Him to give us strength for the journey. That we will have a crown of victory at the end of it all. The testing of our faith is proof that we're His. And there's a victory to be won. Otherwise, we're fair weather Christians. 
We never face any trials. We never face any cancer. We never face any brokenness. We never face any depression. But in spite of all those things, His hands are still on us. He clothes us with righteousness and He puts a crown on us just to prove to the world that we are His. Oh, that's so good. We see here that these 24 elders are clothed with white garments. They did not dress themselves. They received it by grace. No matter how wrinkled you are in your spiritual apparel, no matter how soiled your garments are before God, He can and will change you. Because if you were to go to heaven in the state that you're in and sin and unrepentance, when you get to heaven, you'll be so bored. There's no strip joints. There's no alcohol. There's no drugs. There's, there's no gossip in heaven. It's all about Jesus, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's about Him. It's a glorious worship service and, until forever. So you must be born again. Some of y'all say, well, I'd rather go to hell. Yeah, you rather. That's right, you rather. Well, that's just... I can't do nothing about it. That's what you want to do. And the only way you ever change is if God changes you. That's the only way. Pervasive words will not change you. Because somebody will come along and just talk you out of it. It takes a God changing your heart to still serve Him even when you don't understand. It takes a God changing your mindset and your heart to love Him, even when you're flat on your back or laying in the hospital bed or you gasping for the next breath. And though He may slay me, like Job says, I will trust Him. These 24 elders have white robes and crowns. And He promised the same for us, that we'll have crowns. That He'll bless us. And what do we do with those blessings? We'll throw them at His feet. Because it's not about us. Yes, there's little thrones around. But they're only there because He established them. They're only there because He's in control and He reigns. So you may be promoted in your field. You may be someone who's exemplary in what you do. Don't let that build your ego or believe that you made it on your own. Believing that your legs caught you and caused you to run after it. And it caused you to build yourself up by your own strength and your own intellect. No, it was the Lord who brought you where you are and placed you where you are. Who clothed you and crowned you and keeps you and sustained you. Amen. Verse 5. From the throne comes flashings of lightning and rumblings. And peals of thunder before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. These are the same thunderings that Moses and the children of Israel heard at Mount Sinai. Remember how the, as the mountain shook and God's presence came down to the mountain. People trembled as the ground shook. A trumpet blast. His presence was there. Thunderings and lightnings are terror to people who are enemies with God. But we don't see where the 24 elders run from the thunderings or the lightnings. They don't fear that. In fact, they feel quite at home. 
I guess that's why Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. I know that they will not follow. There's no terror here. But to the unconverted and unbeliever, they see thunders and lightnings and they want to run the other way because they're enemies of God. They can't find God. They don't want God. Just like a thief can't find a police officer. We're rebels and we don't want to be found by Him. And we don't want to find Him. But these 24 elders are quiet at home. They're crowned by Him. They're clothed by Him. They only have thrones because of Him. You do well to follow their example. You do well to live your days in light of God seeing you right where you are because He placed you there. From We see in verse number 5 the, the flashes of lightning. The rumblings and the pearls of thunder before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. I, I want to explain in Exodus chapter 19 verse 16. Taking notes, Exodus chapter 19 verse 16. On the morning of the third day there was thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that the people at the camp trembled. This is God visiting His people. If God comes in all His glory... He will consume the people. Have you ever been to a church or church and walked down and said, Man, God was there today. I got goose pimples. Oh, that was good. I got shivers down my back. That must have been the Holy Spirit. No, if God showed up, you'd be dead. No doubt about it. And all His glory and His power. Because no one can live and see God. We see in verse number 6. Now, before we go any further, the seven spirits of God, the number 7 there, as we talked about before, means perfection. The perfect presence of God is found there. In verse number 6, And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, the text does not distinguish, was it crystal or was it glass? It says it was smooth like glass. It could have been crystal, it could have been a, it could have been a, a water. But I want to remind you, there's thunderings and lightning. There's rumbling coming from the throne, but the water is calm. Oh, heaven is loud. Don't get me wrong. But it's calming. For He is our shepherd. There's no more striving there. There's no more trying to make it, trying to, trying to survive. There's rest there. He's not going to put you in a box and just shake you up and let you loose like a hornet's nest. I guess that's why Psalms 23 was written. He leads me beside the still waters. Here in heaven, there's still waters. And all we hear is the boomings of our Father speaking over us. Oh, this is so good. I'm sorry. The sea of glass is like crystal. There's no waves to knock you down. You get all that here. Have you ever been so punched, drunk, you're like, you don't, you don't even know where they're coming from anymore. Life is just coming at you hard. There'll be a day where there's no more punches being thrown. There'll be a day where you can rest. But for now, be about it. Start fighting. Go to war for sanctification and holiness. Fight for righteousness. Guarding your heart and your mind. Growing in the image of Christ. Knuckle up, buttercup. Buckle up. Let's go. This is not where we walk in peace and harmony here. There's a war to be fought. Christianity is not a playground. It's a battleground. But there's a place where the water is smooth. There are no more tombstones. No more tears and no more goodbyes. 
That's where we rest. Now we don't go to sleep in our pews. Now is not the time to put our Bibles away. Now is not to say, well, I've arrived. I made it to this level. I don't need to strive anymore. They say it. New levels, new devils. The sea of glass is like crystal. A place of peace where our God speaks over us. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes front and behind. In verse number 6, we see that John describes the same winged creatures that are found in Ezekiel 1 and 10 and Isaiah 6. And even in some places in Daniel. We see that David wrote of this God who is above the seraphim. These seraphims are these living creatures that are around the throne. And Psalm 80 verse number 1, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. In Exodus 25, 22, God is speaking to Moses and He says, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that, you are, that are on the ark of the testament, I will speak with you about what I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. In Exodus 25, he's speaking about the ark of the covenant, which is just a snapshot of what we see here in the throne room of God. There was a cherubim on each side of the ark of the covenant that faced each other, and their wings hung over the mercy seat where they would flick the blood to atone for the people of Israel. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and read the book of Exodus. But there is just a simple snapshot of God in His presence and all the glory and the living beasts that are around Him and He dwells there. And if He did not come from His high and lifted and lofted up throne to us, we would still be without revelation and still be lost. It is God who extends mercy to us. We can't make it to Him. So you don't find Jesus. Jesus finds you. People say He he found Jesus. He got religion. That's not how it works at all. Jesus in His parable says, He will leave the 99 to find the one. Have you ever been the one? Oh, I know I have. And let me tell you, I put Him through it. I was running from Him, but He still caught me. The calling of God is irrevocable. He don't give up. He chases like the hounds of heaven to find His. He just don't give up. Thanks be to God, He don't give up. Can anybody say amen to that? Amen. We see around the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now many people and theologians have argued through the years. Can you imagine people arguing over the Bible? Yeah, they do. They argue over anything. But they talk about the four living creatures. In verse number 7, the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. And the third living creature was with the face of man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Now tonight, I lean a certain type of way when it comes to the four creatures. Some people have talked about, well, that's describing the apostles. And they mention the apostles. But I want to share with you tonight that the one that looks like a man is symbolic of the Gospel of Matthew. For Jesus was a man incarnate. The one that looks like a lion is symbolic of Mark, where Jesus comes kingly and in royalty. The one that looks like an ox is symbolic of Luke, 
Where Jesus is a beast of burden and sacrifice where He gives Himself up to save sinners. The eagle is symbolic of John who has an eagle eye who's above all philosophies and theology. He gets a clear picture. That's why we have the book of John because he had a clear vision because God allowed it. And these four living creatures, what do they do all day? Well, they sing. In verse number 8, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around within and night and day. And they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. We see the song they sing. The gospel sing the song and the glory and the grandeur of God. They talk about how holy He is. They establish who He is. The Lord God. Almighty. Almighty means in all control. He's in control of everything. From the tilt and the angle of the earth's rotation to salvation. He's God. He reigns over everything. So this God is holy, holy, holy. The Lord God Almighty. Who was. That means He was back then. Back in Genesis. Before Genesis, He was. And is. That means He's now. The same God. The same God who was with Daniel. The same God. The same God who walked with Moses. The same God who spoke to Abraham. Is the same God who speaks to you. The same God who guided the pebble that left David's sling to slay the giant. Is the same God who orchestrates everything around you. He is God. He is Almighty. He was. He is. And is to come. That means he'll be God tomorrow. Amen. You hear what I said? You hear what I said? You heard me, right? He's God tomorrow. So why are you freaking out? What are you worried about? He was God then. He's God today. He's God tomorrow. Ain't nothing changed. That's right. Only thing changing is you. And I hope it's for the better. Amen. The God that was. The God who split the Red Sea. The God who brings down Pharaohs. The God who caused Nebuchadnezzar's mind to break and fracture. And then a couple months later puts it back together. The God who raises the dead. The God who calms the seas. The God who walks on water. Is the God who stoops to listen to me. He was, He is, and will be. That's a good song to learn, don't you think? Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That will help me face tomorrow. That will help me finish up the rest of the day. That will help me face whatever's coming my way. That will help me, if I get a snapshot of glory in God's throne room, then my issues ain't that big. Whatever is ailing me, whatever is aching me, whatever is tearing me down, if I just lived in a moment and captured a snapshot of His glory and His grandeur and understand He's in control, everything else is the small stuff. We do well to live in Revelation chapter number 4. We do good to keep our fingers in Revelation 4 in the throne room of God and all His might. God Almighty, who is holy, 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 who was and is and is to come. In verse number 9, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and give thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, whenever they sing this, whenever they 
go into a chorus. This is a wonderful quartet. They break into song. Southern gospel quartets, I love them. They, they get the tones right and, they, and then they sound good, but they cannot compare to these living creatures in the throne room of heaven bringing glory to God. And when they strike up that tune, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne. And worship Him who lives forever and ever. <laughs> he lives forever and ever. Some of us are not old enough to say, well, I had a good relationship with that person and they helped me do this or that. And now they've gone on and passed away or they've been promoted to a different area and now I don't have a hook anymore. I don't have a little edge on the competition because that person has moved on. But you see here that He lives forever and ever. Always, all the time. You know how long that is? That's a long time. Always and forever, all the time, always. He lives forever. There is no chance of Him fading. There is no chance of Him losing His memory or developing Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease or getting cancer or being demoted. There is no chance of Him being promoted because He is the pinnacle of all of creation. He is God and He lives forever and ever. Oh, if that ain't something solid to build your life on, there ain't nothing is. He lives forever and ever. He was, He is, and He will be. He's God Almighty. That makes your pillow a lot softer at night. What do they do when they hear that song? Who lives forever and ever? The 24 elders fall down before Him who's seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. They go to church. Something about hearing about Him conjures up worship. Did you know everyone worships? We all worship something. You might hear an old song come on the radio and take you back. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. You, it's a worship song. It, it conjures up memories of something, uh, of a place, of a person, or something you did. Because that's worship. We're made to worship. We worship drugs, alcohol. We worship ourselves. We worship money. We worship our reputation and vanity. We worship something. We're created to worship. And we see the 24 elders fall down and worship when that song hits, when it hits just right. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And you do good, Christian, to learn that song now. So when that familiar tune hits in glory, oh, oh now I know what to do. Oh, we're going to throw our crowns down and I'm going to worship. But we don't want to worship here. I don't want to wrinkle my suit. My purple suit. I don't want to wrinkle my jeans. I don't want to. I don't want nobody to look at me kind of funny when I'm at the altar and I have tears in my eyes and I'm before Him already, throwing crowns that no one can see but me and Him. I don't want nobody to judge me and say, well, "What are they going through?" And think about I'm having troubles. We won't worship in Him. We won't worship Him here. We won't worship Him there. The twenty-four elders fall down. Before Him who was seated on the throne. And worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. And this is where we chime in. We sing as well. Because worship is always corporate. What you mean worship is corporate? Does that mean everybody wears ties and live in high-rise buildings? No, corporate means it's together. 
as a gathering. Worship is in a gathering. We worship together in a gathering. Nowhere do you read here that one of the 24 elders stayed at home and Zoom meeting the service. You don't see that. You don't see where we just stream church. Well, church is meant to be not consumed, but participated in. You go to church, being in church, being in the church. You watch movies. You watch television shows. You don't watch church. You just don't sit there and go, oh, this is good. Eat popcorn and gossip about, hey, I don't like the way he's acting. I don't like that character. this, This is not a show for you. This is worship. I won't get on longer on that. People ain't going to like that. So They fall and they cast their crowns before Him saying, Worthy are you. <laughs> Let me get through this without losing it. Worthy are you, our Lord and God. He's Lord and our God. Lord distinguishes His reign. What does He reign? He's Lord of all. But He's also God. That means He's creator of everything. Worthy are you, Lord our God, to receive glory. I mean, he gets all the credit. He did it. Who did it? Who the king? He he did it. To receive glory and honor, respect and power. There is nobody's coming up beside him to compete against him. He reigns absolutely. For you created all things. That don't mean some things. That don't mean just the church world and the secular. The sacred and the secular. There's no two kingdoms. There's one. He created it all. He created the crack house, the outhouse, the penthouse, the white house. He created it. He's God. Wait a minute. You mean He gets credit for creating the crack house? Well, most of us, that's what we did. But He's still God and it's for His glory. Because when the crackhead goes and kills somebody and he's standing before God on judgment day, he'll be judged. And because God is holy, that person will go to hell. And it will be shown that God is fair. But when that crackhead repents of his sins and trusts in Jesus, and the same crackhead can go to heaven, it shows that God is full of mercy and grace. And that shows He's a good and forgiving God. <laughs> Either way, He's getting glory. You see what I'm saying? All things were created for Him and by Him. That's what it says to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they exist and were created. He made the pimp, the prostitute, the John. He created the preacher, the little old blue-haired lady. He created all of them. And they exist by His will. <laughs> that is a little different now, don't you, get, don't you agree? That He reigns over everything. He's God. I was created for His glory. And they exist because they were created by Him. This is good. Oh, that's it. That. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's it. I'm surprised I wanted to keep going. <laughs> but let's look at just look at eleven because I'm going to tell you a little bit about five, and we'll do that next week. Chapter four is talking about the Father. Oh, but chapter five. <laughs> chapter five. Jesus was standing around. And Philip was one of the disciples. And Philip said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, Philip, you've been with me about three years. I'm paraphrasing. They don't say exactly like this. I've been with you about three years. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
Colossians tells us that Jesus is God in the flesh. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. For God is invisible. He is not even described here in chapter number 4. It's just colors, thunders, and rumblings. His power is beyond anything we can even imagine. We can't compare Him to anything, but we can relate to God because of Jesus. Only because of Jesus. So somebody whose deity relates to God, He is God, but He's also man. I can tell you, I can't walk into room in chapter number 4 because He's mighty, He's God, He's almighty. Those rumblings and those thunderings ain't inviting me. I know there's 24 elders who are clothed in white and got crowns, but I know me and I know how I'm spiritually dressed. And what's beyond that, those eyes that are in the four beasts, they see too and God in His glory sees me right through me. And He knows I don't belong there and I can't just walk in. I know there's a door there. But Jesus is the door. He's the only reason I can see the throne room. He's the only reason I'm allowed in the room. Because of Jesus. And that's chapter 5. Oh, don't lose your mind when you read chapter 5. If you, have you read, you've read chapter 5, right? You have, right? You've read chapter 5. If you haven't read 5, try not to yell tonight to wake up your neighbors. Because it's glorious. It talks about the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? That means that was the plan from the beginning to save you. Did you hear what I said? It was the plan the whole time to save you. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't random. It wasn't a toss of the dice. Your name just didn't happen to come up. He went to the cross with your name to intend to save you personally before time was. That was the plan. And He accomplished it. It's not in limbo. He died in your place and in your stead. You're saved. It's as if you're walking in heaven right now. You're that saved. You don't keep yourself saved. He saves you. I use this analogy quite often. But I want you to remember. A lot of times we get a lot of families in here and we got some babies that the mamas are holding. And I'm sure that baby grabs on the mama's blouse and says, I'm holding on to mama. Mama ain't going to drive me. I got her. That baby's grip ain't going to hold that baby there. That baby's held in the arms of the mother. Just like you are held in the arms of grace. God is holding you. So why are you freaking out? He keeps you. He holds you. He don't save you and drop the ball with you. Preacher, are you saying once saved, always saved? Did I say that? No, I believe once saved, fully saved. You're His. That's right. When you're His, you don't want to run away from Him. You don't want to do things just to pull the grace card. I'm saved so I can do what I want. Well, you ain't read the book of Rev- Romans. You ain't read the book of Romans. That we don't sin just that grace should abound. Right. When you're truly His, you don't want to do those things that put Jesus on the cross. You're His. You don't want to do anything to bring dishonor to your Savior. Once saved, fully saved. Hebrews 7.25 He saves to the uttermost. That means He saves you absolutely. You're His. Oh no, you ain't all perfect. You ain't got it all together. You still deal with sin. Even the book of Romans chapter 7 tells us that. Oh wretched man that I am, what hope is there for me? And He answers His own question. And it's always the same answer. Jesus. We're saved by grace. 
That doesn't cause us to run to sin. That makes us run to Jesus and stay even closer. Because He forgives sinners. Remember this when you fail, when you sin. Whenever you ain't quite as holy as you thought you were. When it don't roll off of you like Teflon and it sticks to you and you still got issues and you still got doubts. Don't run from Him. Come to Him. Because He forgives sinners because that's how there is. And on that day when we hear that song, that quartet cue, we'll throw our crowns at His feet and say it was Him who saved us. It was Him who redeemed us. Notice the posture of those who are worshiping. They're down on their faces. When you're down on your face, that means you expose your neck and whoever's above you can put their hand, foot on your neck and say, I've conquered you. You're mine. And that's what they're saying. Here I am. Take all of me. It's not that you need more Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs more of you. Here I am. Take every part of my life. Take my hands, my feet, my mind, my thoughts. I submit to you completely and absolutely. The Holy Spirit needs more of you. You don't need to beg for more of Him. He's ready and willing. More willing than you are. Repent and trust in Him. Bring your doubts, your worries, and your struggles. Bring them to Him. For Jesus died for sinners because that's all there is. Amen? Let's bow our heads and pray.